Welcome to Truly Fit. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. As usual on Thursdays, it's just me talking about something that's trending in the fitness, health, medical communities, maybe something that overlaps into business or a topic that I previously touched on with a guest that I want to elaborate on. On Mondays are the interview episodes where I have an expert in fitness or health or medical or business industries come on to talk to us and give us some good insights on a particular topic. Today, I want to talk about Ozempic. It is a weight loss drug, also known as semaglutide, that was given out for type 2 diabetes. And I'm going to go on a, a bit of a rant here. So, you know, first I want, to, I want to explain that when drugs get put out into the market, or in order for a drug to get put out into the market through the, you know, through the pharmaceutical chain, it has to be developed and designed for something. Now, it's not always the case where that is going to be the only issue that it deals with, right? The drugs have multi, multi sort of facet purposes. They can, they can be used in, for, for different things. And then sometimes we also find out that drugs work uh, in different areas, right? It's not like mechanistically, it's only designed for this. It, how it works, it could potentially help anybody. You don't necessarily just need to have this issue, right? Anybody can be helped with Adderall just like anybody can be helped with Ozempic. You don't need to have some sort of insulin-based issue to be helped with it. And so much so that, you know, for example, speaking of like the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you know, narcolepsy is not like something that is extremely prevalent throughout society. I think they maybe like 145,000 people in America have narcolepsy, but it's also like 60% of people who are diagnosed with narcolepsy could be potentially misdiagnosed. So um, my guess is that the number is actually way lower than that. So people guess that it's higher than that. My guess is that it's lower than that. They also look at the drugs that people are on and assume that they're on narcolepsy, assume that they're narcoleptic because of the drugs they're on when that's not the truth. So there's a drug called ProVigil, also known as like NuVigil now, and that was used you know, for a bunch of different reasons. Now, they, it was designed, quote unquote, for n- like narcoleptics by the pharmaceutical industry. But really, you know, uh, like people who were flying 24-hour missions in the military were using it because it keeps you up for long periods of time and still allows you to really like your mind to be focused without being that sort of like Adderall jittery. So then uh, they saw the advantages of it and People started wanting it in the tech industry. So your tech bros who wanted to stay up all night coding were taking ProVigil and NuVigil, and they wanted prescriptions of it. So basically, they just like switched the you know, the the industry, the the pharmaceutical and the medical industry said like, oh well, actually this is really good for shift work disorder, whatever that is. It just made up a disorder to say, oh yeah, if you work multiple shifts in a row, if you're up long hours, if you're working long hours, this could help you. Well, that's not a disorder, right? That's, that just means you work long hours. Like if you decide not to work long hours, then you no longer have this disorder. It's just like it's a lifestyle choice that you made based upon your career. But anyway, so they started prescribing. New Vigil and ProVigil for people who are like working long hours. So as you can see, it's not like drugs are always mechanistically designed to just treat one disorder. They have to be from a pharmaceutical standpoint in order to hit the market. But once they're in the market, they start to get shifted around because they can help multiple people in, in different areas. So you're, you'll see you'll see that, you know, Ozempic has very, very similar char- characteristics where you know, they say it's designed for type 2 diabetes. And if, and if you look at what, what it's doing to insulin and how it functions in the pancreas, yeah, I can see that. But really, ultimately, it's a weight loss drug. It works for anybody trying to lose weight. We've had this conversation before on this podcast. We don't understand type 2 diabetes. We have over 200 cells in the body. And endocrinologists claim that only three cells, fat, liver, and muscle cells, somehow are affected by type 2 diabetes. But so far, we basically, uh, uh, through, through all of the research, we know that 
fatty acids have a lot to do with this, right? We're, we're, we're still investigating exactly the roles they play, but when we're looking at insulin resistance. But, but what we don't know is we don't have a pathophysiological explanation for what's going on. We don't have a molecular explanation for what's going on, right? The precise pathological sequence, which leads to insulin resistance, is unknown at this point. We don't, we, we, we can't explain it. Now, in, in other industries of the, of medicine, let's say like, like, uh, if you go to a rheumatologist and you go, Hey, you have rheumatoid arthritis. We can't exactly explain the mechanisms behind why this occurred, but we're going to treat the symptoms, but you're going to have this. This, this is something you have now for life. Now that's the difference between type two diabetes. Type two diabetes is not a life, a lifetime disorder. Why? Because it's a lifestyle disorder. You can change your lifestyle and go from type 2 diabetic to pre-diabetic to not having diabetes at all. And because you can change that, we shouldn't treat it the same way we treat something like rheumatoid arthritis, which you were supposed to have for life and you're just treating the symptoms. But instead, unfortunately, endocrinologists have taken this on instead of this being pushed onto, let's say, personal trainers or other people who deal with lifestyle issues with their clients who people have type 2 diabetes and they try to treat it pharmacologically and they go oh here's the here's the medicine we have this is how it works although they can't really explain how it works they give a very general vague overview if you ask them how it works they'll never get into the specifics because they can't because we don't have a precise pathophysiological sequence which leads to insulin resistance we don't we don't know it's unknown so um because of that they, they won't give you really good details on why it would help you over someone else but i i, I do want to first maybe talk a little bit about ozempic and how it works and then go into sort of the, the the craze going around it now and my thoughts on it from more of a cultural perspective. So, you know, the the, the mechanisms of, of how Ozempic works is in a few different ways. It, it, it has a stimulation of uh, glucose-dependent insulin from the pancreas, which, which helps it. It's, it suppresses glucagon uh, secretion from uh, pancreatic cells, and also it delays gastric emptying. And all of those things can help lead to weight loss. If you're somebody who needs that. Now, if you're type 2 diabetic, chances are you're overweight and the the obesity is is an issue for your overall health. So, of course, losing weight will help. And I'm all for let's expedite the journey of losing weight if you have a little bit of a, let's call it like a rocket booster, and then you pull that drug out and then you keep going. The question is, you know, like I always say, I'm in in my pseudo uh, economist way here. There are, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. So what else is this doing in your body? We don't have all the studies out now because it's not like this drug has been on the market for 30 years. So, I mean, there have been some studies that show some connective tissue issues and who knows what could what else could be happening. But I will tell you is I'm fairly confident that there will be a secondary effect because guess what? There always is. There are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. There's going to be some sort of secondary effect. Will it be small? Will it be big? Will it be soon? Will it be later down the road? Who knows? I'm not here to tell you that. That's well above my pay grade. I don't study these things. But what I will say is that the craze of everyone taking Ozempic for weight loss, is it good? Is it bad? I personally am all for people, like I said, getting that quick start, that kick, that kick start, that boost, and then taking that away from them slowly and letting them get more confidence. They lose some weight. Their lifestyle starts to change. They start going to the gym more. They start eating healthier. Maybe they thought it was the Ozempic that was doing majority of the work, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just their change in lifestyle, and it was uh, more of a placebo than anything else. But, but, but I guess my my hesitations here are are the abuse 
And it always happens, right? These drugs become abused. People like like people will do the opposite. It won't be a kickstart. It will be the reason they won't they won't attribute any of the lifestyle changes to the to their uh, their weight loss, and they'll they'll think it's the drug, and they won't want to get off the drug because they think this is the drug. This is what it's doing. I lost ten pounds, and then maybe I can lose twenty. Maybe I can lose thirty. And then there's a whole psychological side that again is well above my pay grade to say you know how, how do you wean somebody off this and let them know that this you know your hard work was also a big component of this, not not just this drug, but you know, there's there's so many people out there who who are now talking about Ozempic, and what I what I will say is, like I always say, stop looking at people's credentials and start looking at their explanations. It's really important that we hear people, and and they explain things, and that we trust people, and that they have both scientific rationale and cultural rationale, and just overall, you know, both. Both from a short-term and long-term perspective, they are explaining to you why this could be helpful, and they're giving you both sides of the story, and also that they don't maybe have an agenda behind it. So you 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 can't just go to your doctor, let's and and they go, you know what, you have type two diabetes. Here's the drug, and you go, great, I'm going to take it. You should be saying, why am I taking this drug? What is it doing in my body? What are the alternatives to taking this? What happens if I don't take this? How long am I going to be on this? These are all the questions that you should be asking really for any medication. And too many people go, oh, it's the doctor. They told me to do it. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Or, oh, it's the registered dietitian. They said I should do this. I'm going to go ahead and do this. No, you need to question everyone. It doesn't matter what you're doing. They should be an expert in their area if they are telling you to do something. I, I, I made a reel about this. If I go to a golf fitness expert, uh, a golf club expert, and they see me swing, and then they do my wrist-to-floor measurement, and they put a piece of tape on my club, and they see the angle the ball's hitting off, and they go, you know what, Steve, you're two degrees upright. And they walk me through the process of why they did this from a mathematical standpoint and how this works out. Then it makes sense to me. But I'm not going to just take his word for it. He's not going to just say, hey, Steve, you're two degrees upright. I'm going to go, oh, I trust this guy. No. Why? Because he works at the golf shop? No, I, I need to know why. And and as the, uh, uh, you know, the, obviously that's, it's really not a big deal to have golf clubs that, that don't fit you. I mean, from a golf perspective, it certainly is. But, you know, in the overall, uh, when you're, we're talking about life, it's not a big deal. But, but as, you know, as the stakes increase, so should your understanding and your concern. The stakes should be commiserate with both your understanding of the answer to the process and the protocol and your concern. Meaning if somebody says, hey, put this Band-Aid on your cut and you go, well, why this Band-Aid over this Band-Aid? Maybe it's no big deal. You just have a small cut. You're using this Band-Aid. But if someone says, hey, we're going to do this surgery, this lap band surgery over that lap band surgery, you better do your friggin' due diligence on why you're doing that lap band surgery over the other lap band surgery, right? Because the stakes are higher. Therefore, your concern should be higher. Therefore, it's not just about looking at their credentials, but the overall explanation. Do your due diligence. I've been caught in this myself. I recently just had finger surgery. Again, I had finger surgery four years ago. That's something called a central slip injury, where basically a football hit the tip of my pinky. There's a tendon that runs along all the knuckles in your pinky that makes your pinky flex and extend. That tendon slipped off. Think of a rubber band. It got extended. So they were going to tack it back on. And what I could have done, most likely, is just kept my finger straight for six to eight weeks in a straight brace, and it likely would have healed itself. I didn't do my due diligence enough. I got surgery because the surgeon told me that it was time sensitive. Guess what? It was not time sensitive. The surgery was not time sensitive at all. So much so that I got the second surgery four years later. Talk about not time sensitive. So 
I went ahead, got the surgery. Guess what? The surgery didn't work because what the surgeon also didn't tell me is that there was only a 50% chance that it was going to take given that type of surgery, given my type of injury. So if I had known that I could have just splinted it for eight weeks and it might have healed and that if I had surgery, there was only a 50% chance of get of getting that surgery. Do you think I would have got the surgery? No, of course I would have said no, but I didn't do my due diligence. I was in a weird time of my life where I was moving and I had a lot going on and I just... I, I rushed, I rushed it. It's not, it, not like me, but these things happen. So we all make mistakes in, in the medical field. We have to understand that if, if you're a, if, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Surgeons are going to want to do surgery. The endocrinologist is going to want to prescribe you all the drugs that the endocrinologist uh, subscribes on a, uh, on a, on a regular basis. This is what these people know. This is what they do. You have to do your own due diligence. My wife is a doctor. I interview physicians for a living. I'm not somebody who is skeptical in general of physicians. I'm skeptical of anybody. But the stakes matter more in certain cases. If somebody goes, this is the best way to beat Super Mario, it doesn't really matter if I if I take that person's advice and I die and I don't beat Super Mario. The stakes aren't that high. I just reset the game and I play over. But when it comes to your health, there are no higher stakes than your health. The only secondary to that is your wealth. So when we're talking about health and wealth, which we do in this podcast, you have to question people. You cannot just take their credentials. You have to listen to their explanations and see if it makes sense and then do your own due diligence and trust yourself. You have to be your number one advocate in both health and wealth. Yes, you want professionals to guide you, but ultimately you have to be the one to make the final decision. Why? Because when shit goes wrong, you're the one who has to face the repercussions in both your health and your wealth. And you, you, you're, you can't do anything about it, right? Can you sue someone? Typically, yeah, I guess you could in this very litigious age. But that's also a pain. That also takes up time. Most people don't want to do that. And guess what? You might not have a case because you didn't even do your due diligence in the first place to know that contractually you're not allowed to sue them because of whatever you signed, signed on to. So understand that you're, you're your number one health advocate. So when you're taking something like, hey, I want to, I want to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to take Ozempic. Okay, well, don't just trust what the doctor says. Don't just trust what the guy down the street told you. You better do your due diligence because this could have long-term ramifications on your life. And moving forward, if you're interconnected with your family and community, it could have effects on all of their lives, right? If so, God forbid something were to happen to you. So you know, I know this wasn't, you know, we, we started off talking specifically about the science of Ozempic, but really why I wanted to have this conversation is because I saw people on the National Academy of Sports Medicine talking about Ozempic. And of course, the first thing that somebody says is, right, some guy who comes out who's a doctor of like physical therapy, but he still uses doctor next to his name uh, to confuse people to say like, okay, well, you, you, that doesn't mean you you like, you know more about Ozempic than I do because you're a doctor of physical therapy. But but he states all the stuff about Ozempic. And then at the very end, he says like, make sure that anybody who doesn't have like the proper you know credentials isn't really talking about this. It's like, what? You don't have the proper credentials either, dude. And then also, no, the whole point is that we need to start asking questions so that we can't just trust people who have agendas because they have credentials. We have to push back, ask the questions ourselves. We are ultimately in charge of our health and our wealth. Therefore, we have to ask the questions. The more something is potentially dangerous or harmful to us long term, and the more it means to us, the more we have to question it, the slower we should be to make the decision. This has been an episode of the Truly Fit Podcast. On Monday's episode, I believe we have on Dr. Chris Swart. I did a podcast with him about the cannabinoid system, which was amazing. And guess what? I lost it. Something happened where 
his video or excuse me, his audio didn't record properly. I don't know if it was still on my end or like the picture was off. It was all screwed up. And I, I blame it on myself, not Dr. Chris Schwartz. So we're going to do it over again and I'm going to put it out right away on Monday. Uh, he's super smart. He's been on the podcast before and he's going to give great information on the cannabinoid system, which I know nothing about. So it's really fun to question him on it. This has been an episode of the Truly Fit Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform, and feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.